You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to episode 37 of the Crisis in the Church series. We'll finish our discussion from last week, all leading to the main question of these two episodes. How can the church, which is indefectible, give us a right of worship, which is defective? Last week, we looked at how the church could, in fact, promulgate errors through an ecumenical, non-dogmatic council. Then, we saw how the church is not always infallible in its disciplinary laws. So today, we're going to continue on the same track by looking at liturgy. Have there been errors in Catholic liturgy in the past? Were they corrected? What can history and logic tell us about the infallibility of the church in its liturgy? And can we be 100% certain about any of this? Or does prudence have a role to play? We're going to continue our conversation with Father McGilvery right now on the SSPX Podcast. Father McGilvery, thank you for joining us again. And this is the second part on this broader question that we are uh, investigating today, which is how is it that the church can give us a defective rite of worship? How is it that the church can be defective in terms of liturgy? And this is, this is an important question for us. Now, we looked at the, in the first episode, we looked at infallibility in some detail, um, and we started to look at disciplinary infallibility. Now, if you haven't already, I'm talking to our listeners, if you haven't already seen that first episode, it might be good to at least read through it. We do also have some notes on our website on sspxpodcast.com slash crisis that you can review as well. Um, but we're going to dive into the second part here, Father, which is um, what does the magisterium of the church say? about disciplinary infallibility. That's where we start with this section, right, Father? Absolutely, and it's a crucial question because, of course, the the theologians themselves, when they write on these subjects in their manuals, they're looking primarily to what the Church herself has said through her authentic magisterium on this subject. Um, It turns out that there's not a whole lot, however, that directly touches on, on the precise subject of disciplinary infallibility. We'll bring up what there is, however, and first of all, we can say that there is an indirect affirmation of disciplinary infallibility, um, especially in the general councils, like Trent in particular, um, which often do invoke liturgical praxis in support of the doctrine which is being defined or defended. Um, for example, taking Trent again, um, when the Council of Trent defined the sacramental nature of holy orders in in the corresponding canon of that council, the church says, if anyone says that by sacred ordination, the Holy Ghost is not imparted, and that therefore the bishops say in vain, receive ye the Holy Ghost, let him be anathema. So it's given as a reason um, for rejecting this, this heresy, um, that in the liturgical ceremony of ordination, the bishop says to the priest, the ordinan, receive the Holy Ghost. And Holy Mother, the Church, in the Council of Trent, she's arguing uh, it would be impossible for the Church to have that practice, um, for the bishop to say that at all ordination ceremonies for centuries, and for it all to be based upon a falsehood, um, which would be true if if the ordinand did not, in fact, receive the Holy Ghost. Um, so the discipline, or specifically here, the liturgy of the church is being invoked as an authority, as a source of dogma, and this is being done in an ecumenical council. Um, we can also well, find other examples, uh, just to give one from the same council, um, speaking of, of the truth that our Lord is to be truly adored in, in the Holy Eucharist. 
Trent says, If anyone says that in the holy sacrament of the Eucharist, the only begotten Son of God is not to be adored, even outwardly, nor to be borne about in procession according to the praiseworthy and universal rite and custom of the Holy Church, let him be anathema. So once again, it's the um, praiseworthy and universal right and custom of the Holy Church, which is invoked as an argument to support dogma. And it's, it's presupposing, of course, that, you know, that custom, because it is universal, it's the universal right of the Church, it has to be solid, it has to be good. That's why we appeal to it. Um, and so in this way, Trent is indirectly teaching uh, us about a certain infallibility of the church in disciplinary and specifically liturgical matters. However, let's be clear not to overextend the force of this argument, um, because it's clear that, let's say, the liturgy is being invoked to justify the truth that the council is defining. However, this liturgical practice is not the object itself of the council's definition. It just enters in as a reason. And we know that Holy Mother the Church, um, when she's gathered in an ecumenical council, um, she's infallible in the precise points that she defines, but those other things that are introduced into the text, such as reasons for the, the truth to be defined, those reasons don't enter into the protection of infallibility. And this is quite uh, clearly the teaching, um, not just of, of me or, you know, some SSPX priest who's making stuff up, but um, uh, we can appeal to, for example, St. Robert Bellarmine, um, who says, and I, I quote him, his book on the authority of the councils, um, in the ecumenical councils, neither the disputations that precede the decrees, nor the reasons that are adduced, nor the things that are introduced to explain and illustrate them, but only the bare decrees themselves are de fide, of the faith. And not all decrees, but only those that are proposed as de fide of the faith. Um, so all that, just to remind ourselves, one, that just because a certain phrase occurs in an ecumenical council doesn't mean that it's infallible. It has to be the point itself, which is under definition. And the church's liturgical infallibility as such has never been directly defined. Um, so we have a very strong argument in favor of it, but it doesn't amount yet to a truth of faith because it's not the object of a clear and precise definition. Um, moreover, it's not 100% clear by any stretch of the imagination that the intention of Trent or the other councils is to appeal to liturgical practice as an absolutely infallible rule of faith in you know every single detail in every liturgical rubric. Um, it would suffice to point to it as merely an authentic source of doctrine, one which of itself provides great probability in favor of the, the doctrine that is attached to it, um, but not always necessarily infallible certainty. Um, and later on, we will examine certain cases where the liturgy um, did teach things that are incorrect, or even in the light of certain definitions, truly heretical. Um, uh, for example, there was a, a reading in the breviary for the Feast of the Assumption, um, a, an epistle 
falsely attributed to St. Jerome in which the bodily assumption of Our Lady was challenged, was put in doubt. And that was in the uh, the church's universal liturgy. All priests were reading that lesson um, as part of their, uh, you know, bravery, their divine office, which binds under pain of grave sin. So that was a universal discipline, liturgical discipline of the church, binding under pain of sin. And in fact, it contained a false and ultimately, now we know, a heretical um, definite or, or a heretical proposition, um, thanks to the definition of the Assumption of Our Lady in 1950. Um, so I just bring that up right now to point out that um, this use of the liturgy um, by the ecumenical councils as an argument for doctrine does not mean of itself that every single detail of the liturgy is infallibly true. Um, and against so the were, facts, there is no arguing. Right. So there, there are some specific cases, though, where, where again, Eucharistic adoration, the sacramental nature of holy orders, Trent has defined those as being dogma, as being you know, mm -hmm. infallible, or they, they are infallible by virtue of them being uh, defined solemnly by Trent. But in other cases, it's just, again, it's, it's not as clear. They do, it seems that liturgical definitions do tend towards infallibility in as mm -hmm. much as they support uh, infallible uh, theological opinions, but they're not always in and of themselves a, a infallible practice of, of theology. That's what it seems. So this, okay. this invoking of the liturgy as an argument for defining dogma does not of itself equate to an infallible definition that everything in the liturgy is infallible. No, that would be going too right. far. Um, okay. So that's, that's the ecumenical councils. That's Trent. Now, we can also speak of certain things that individual popes have said about the liturgy. Um, now, most notably, there is a quotation of Pius VI in his Constitution Auctorum Fidei, in which he condemns this, the Jansenist Synod of Pistoia um, for, and I quote here, for including and submitting to a prescribed examination, even the discipline established and approved by the Church, as if the Church, which is ruled by the Spirit of God, could have established discipline which is not only useless and burdensome, for Christian liberty to endure, but which is even dangerous and harmful and leading to superstition and materialism. So in other words, um, Pope Pius VI is condemning these Jansenists in the Synod of Pistoia for suggesting that the church could have established discipline which is harmful to souls. And this seems very close to directly stating the thesis of, of liturgical and disciplinary infallibility. Um, now, of course, each of these condemned propositions is censured with certain labels. Um, the way that Pius VI censures this, this proposition of Pistoia is he calls it false, rash, scandalous, dangerous, offensive to pious ears, injurious to the church and the spirit of God by whom it is guided, at least erroneous. So notice, we have to, of course, accept the condemnation, but understand it within the, the, the limits and terms that it's given. So the idea that the church could have established, you know, harmful, superstitious um, liturgical practices um, is a proposition which is at least erroneous. He does not say heretical. He allows for the possibility that maybe it could be heretical, but we at least know it's an error. Okay, um, so in other words, it's the mind of the Pope that this proposition is, um, let's say, the, the, the disciplinary and liturgical infallibility of the Church is at least a theological certainty, even if it's not yet a truth of faith. 
So he, he came out, uh, Octomophy Day was something, it was 1794, and then the Synod of Pistoia was like 1786. There was, there was like 10, 12 years difference between these two, so he came out afterwards and said, the practices that were, that were produced by this synod, no go, they, you, you can't use them. Ah, uh, well, Or they're, they're right. heretical, or it wasn't false, sorry, he didn't say right. heretical. Well, just to give the background, the, the synod was itself attacking long-standing practices of the Catholic Church. Um, I, you know, I'm not an expert on the synod, so I'd have to reread to point out a lot of particularities. But I think, for example, the, the Jansenist bishops were attacking the practice of um, invoking the Blessed Virgin Mary under many different titles. You know, Our Lady of Good Counsel, Our Lady Help of Christians, Our Lady... Um, you know, Queen of the Angels. And they were saying, we just need to talk about the Blessed Virgin Mary enough with all these titles. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, so they're attacking an, an ancient tradition in the church. For centuries, Our Lady has been invoked under different titles. Um, and there will be many things in the liturgy that they attack in a similar way. In fact, um, the liturgical reforms that they wanted to implement were kind of like a foreshadowing of what happened at Vatican II. Um, and afterwards, with the liturgical commission, um, I believe that they were advocating that the canon of the Mass no longer be recited quietly or, or in a secret tone, but rather it must be out loud. Um, that would be more of a directed liturgical error of theirs. And so Pius VI is saying, whoa, are you calling into question um, what has been the liturgical practice of the Church, authorized and sanctioned by her for centuries? And are you saying that that's superstitious and leads souls into error? You can't say that because the Church is guided by the Holy Ghost. That's basically what he's saying. And we're going to point out, but we may as well do it here since you bring it up, um, that there's not a perfect parallel between these practices of the church that Pius VI is defending and saying are, are necessarily inspired by the Holy Ghost um, and the liturgical reform that was imposed upon the church by Paul VI, because that reform was an innovation. It, it came from, you know, um, it was basically produced from, from scratch um, or looking at... Um, you know, certain other non-Catholic liturgies, in fact, as, as references. Um, and it was something, it was something novel, not an organic development of, of what was previously done. Whereas the discipline of the church that Pius VI is defending here is one that is already well established and practiced by the, the church peacefully and universally for centuries. And so I think it's much clearer that the Holy Ghost must have inspired that liturgy um, than it is to, to say that the Holy Ghost must be inspiring whatever the authority in the church decides to impose, uh, you know, as a novelty. And so I don't think it's fair to take this quotation of Pius VI and apply it to the new Mass, either to say you must accept it um, because it's been promulgated by the Pope, or to say uh, with the set of Acontis, no Pope could have promulgated this, so, so let's, um, let's reject his authority. Okay. It's, it's just apples sense. and oranges, I would say. Sure. Um, and so we'll have some other quotations from popes which are really in the same line. Um, Pius XII, in his encyclical Mediator Dei, he condemns the era of antiquarianism, while, which is to say that we need to go back and replicate everything that was done in the early church and get rid of everything else that was developed afterwards. And he says, condemning antiquarianism, 
that the more recent liturgical rites, he's referring to rites, you know, that were developed during the Middle Ages. So take more recent in a relative sense of, term, of the term. The more recent liturgical rites likewise deserve reverence and respect. They too owe their inspiration to the Holy Ghost who assists the church in every age, even to the consummation of the world. Okay, so it's clear that, well, one, the Holy Ghost assists the church every age, in every age, to the end of the world. I don't think anyone here is going to deny that. Um, and that this specifically has a bearing on the liturgy. And so a, a liturgical rite or custom, which has been practiced universally in the church for centuries, um, it's hard to see how the Holy Ghost could permit that to be a bad rite. Um, but once again, we can go back to our distinction and say, um, are we talking about the same thing when we consider a, a new rite, which is imposed upon the church as a novelty, and it's not peacefully accepted? There is determined resistance, yes, by a minority in the church, um, but, but it's not simply a question of, of numbers. There is an outspoken resistance, which is known to the whole world, and in fact, uh, which is really a thorn in the side of the authorities. Um, but I, I would take that resistance as a sign that um, this new liturgy, it's not conformed to the, the faithful's uh, sense of the faith, sensus fidei, um, and there's, uh, let's say, there's no guarantee that it is the product of the divine inspiration, if you will. Um, keeping in mind especially that in, infallibility is not the same as inspiration. Um, the Holy Ghost may be said to inspire what the, the men of the church do, um, but that's, uh, let's say, that is independence upon, um, or it presupposes their voluntary cooperation. The charism sure. of infallibility prevents the men of the church from failing to cooperate with their graces of state in certain crucial matters which are necessary for the survival and continuation of the church. Um, but once again, we must not exaggerate and say that um, because the Holy Ghost guides the church, that therefore every action of her authorities is always due to his inspiration. Could we make an analogy uh, in in a more personal sense? Um, we know from from catechism that that God will give us the graces, every person the grace that they need, sufficient graces to achieve salvation. Every person has that throughout the world, throughout time. Uh, but that doesn't mean that every person is guaranteed salvation. That means that they have the the ability to to attain heaven. Um, and again, the distinction there is what what can I cooperate with? What do I cooperate with? Um, mm -hmm. Is that the same sort of thing? I mean, Pius the Pius the Twelfth here is saying uh, that the Holy Ghost assists the Church in every age given to the consummation of the world. Uh, a conciliarist would say, "See, he's saying you you love Pius the Twelfth. He's saying he's going to assist the Church. He's not saying Pius, that the Holy Ghost is going is going to make sure that everything's perfect. He's going to give the help. It's right. the same analogy." Exactly. And, and it's a mystery of divine providence to what degree he will allow his human instruments to fail to cooperate with, with his helps and inspirations, which are needed for guiding the church. Um, infallibility does um, provide certain um, delineations or, or barriers, let's say. Um, for example, we know that if the Pope solemnly defines a truth of faith for the whole church, he must be acting in accordance with the, the Spirit of God, with the Holy Ghost, um, because divine providence would not allow him to solemnly define uh, as a truth of faith or morals to be held by the whole church something which is not actually such. Um, so that's one case where we know here and now um, this man, the Pope, must be acting as a true instrument of the Holy Ghost. But we can't say that of every single 
of action of his. And it comes back to this problem of infallibility, whose limits we're still trying to establish, especially in the domain of, of liturgy. Um, and just to make it clear that theologians have always allowed for some um, resistance to divine grace on the part of the authorities and that this and, and have allowed that this could cause great damage in the church it's always worthwhile to bring up some of these quotations from the classic theologians um, who you know lived in the um, time of the Renaissance so shortly thereafter and saw all these worldly popes who were a scandal to the faithful um, and what things did they say about what the popes could do um, we may have already seen this perhaps in other episodes on on you know the limits of obedience and so on um, but just to give an example, um, so Francisco Suarez, a Jesuit theologian, um, envisioned the case of a schismatic pope who would try to change all the liturgical ceremonies that rest on apostolic traditions. He said, you know, there, there, there could be a pope who would try to do that. He calls him schismatic, but I mean, that's something that um, would obviously yeah. have to be subject to uh, a careful discussion as to what exactly that means and something right. curious about that particular theologian Suarez is he didn't think that schismatics are outside the church so um, <laughs> anyways we don't want to invoke him as an authority on all subjects but he's actually saying something that other theologians agree upon um, John of Torquemada who was I believe one of the most influential theologians at the Council of Florence um, he conceded that the Pope might command something contrary to natural or divine law or even undertake something contrary to the constitution of the universal church, which would introduce disorder into the church. Now, if you say, oh, uh, you know, the church is guided by the Holy Ghost, that could never happen. Well, well, clearly that's not what, what these theologians think. Even St. Robert Bellarmine, who's someone that's very frequently quoted by Sedevacontus, um, he hypothesized about a pope who would attack souls or try to destroy the church. And he taught that it will be licit to resist him by not doing what he orders and by impeding the execution of his will. That's from his treatise on the Roman pontiff, book 2, chapter 29. Um, so it's clear that um, this idea of the Holy Ghost guiding the church, it can't be taken in a simplistic or naive way. Um, and it's a mystery of divine providence. In many cases, to what extent will um, you know, the Holy Ghost suffer his instruments to be resistant to his inspirations? So these are, these are all theologians, and, and these are, again, even the words of, of the Pope's prior are, are stating fairly clearly that there is... They, and again, they weren't seeing this in, in reaction to their times, uh, not all of them at least, but they, some of them were hypothesizing and saying, it is a possibility, it is a distinct possibility that a pope could start to lead people astray. And that does not mean that the, that the church has defected. That doesn't mean that the Holy Ghost has left uh, care of the church. It doesn't mean uh, any of it, it doesn't ruin the doctrine of infallibility. It just means that the pope can mistakenly lead people away, even through liturgical means. Absolutely. It, it even goes back to the, um, you know, the episode in the life of our Lord where um, he's in the boat crossing the lake of Genesareth and the, the waters are, are stirred up by a great storm and he's sleeping at the bottom of the boat and the waters are about to make the boat capsize. And the disciples are, are all afraid and they wake him and they say, you know, save us, we're perishing. Um, and our Lord, he calms the wind in the stores. He says, the storm, the storm, and he says, "Oh, ye of little faith, why were you afraid?" Um, now, this has been traditionally applied by the fathers of the church. Saint Bede, for example, it's in one of the, the readings of the breviary. It's applied to the church. 
and the church is sometimes in such a storm that it would seem that she must be about to capsize at any moment. And yet, really, our Lord, although he appears to be oblivious as to what's happening, he's perfectly in control. And the same may be said of the Holy Ghost. It's not for us to determine how far the Holy Ghost may allow the church to um, proceed down a, a very dangerous and destructive path. Um, and it's certainly not for us to abandon the church and say, oh no, this, this could never be the church of Christ. This could never be the one that's guided by the Holy Ghost because of all these problems that we see. Um, that would be mm -hmm. to be of little faith, as our Lord said to his disciples. Yeah, absolutely. Well, do the do the catechisms or the codes of canon law do they say anything on on this subject? We've we've seen what theologians have said. We've seen what the popes have said. Is there anything in in the code or or the catechisms on this? It's an excellent question, and the answer is no. In fact. There is nothing in the codes of canon law, old or new, which say anything directly about uh, disciplinary or um, liturgical infallibility. Now, you know, uh, there may be many people listening to this, and so if they find something, feel free to send it in. Perhaps I'm mistaken. But to my knowledge, um, and having done word searches and so on, um, there's nothing. <laughs> and the same may be said of the catechisms. Um, whether we look at the Catechism of the Council of Trent, of that of St. Pius X, the Baltimore Catechism, nothing on this subject. Um, it's no surprise about the Catechism of Trent, though, because um, it, the first theologian to ever even talk about the Church's disciplinary infallibility, to, to treat of it expressly, was Melchior Cano, a Dominican who was a theologian at Trent. So that's when it was just beginning to be discussed. In other words, um, this is this is a subject we've, which we've only begun to reflect about theologically in the last 500 years or so of the church. And before then, it wasn't even directly a subject of discussion. In the catechisms, we tend to present, let's say, the teachings of the church which are perennial and, and which are certain and which everyone must believe as matters of faith or, or you know, um, it, it's the basics Sometimes in, in the manuals of the theology, theologians will present their opinions on matters that are still a subject of controversy within the church. But those subjects are generally avoided in the catechisms, which just aim to teach the fundamentals and avoid controversial subjects, which aren't perfectly decided upon by or where there's no consensus. Why confuse people with these things? And so I think it is a telling sign that you don't find any direct or explicit treatment of this subject in any of the sources that we just referred to. Well, that's that's really the meat of, of what we've been wanting to talk about here over the last, you know, including last episode about an hour, hour and a half or so. Um, so how do we how do we summarize this all um, Father, in, in terms of how do we, I mean, we've looked at a lot of statements, we've looked at a lot of, lot of ideas, uh, a lot of um, statements from the church and from the popes. Um, how do we kind of tie it all up with a bow here? Excellent question. So I think we just need to acknowledge um, that there is still a certain ambiguity um, or lack of precision as regards the teaching of the church and of theologians on this subject of disciplinary infallibility. And so when we are confronted, when we're pressed by um, those who hold different positions from us um, on the basis of objections, which are concerned with this disciplinary infallibility, um, we should not feel obliged 
to um, you know answer in a completely satisfactory manner every single possible objection taken from an opinion of some theologian who said such and such in, in this manual of his. Um, precisely because this matter is not certain. It's not been determined by the church. Um, if we want to really quickly summarize, what are the points of controversy? Um, so does this infallibility include disciplinary matters as such, precisely as beneficial or harmful to souls, or only in their connection to dogma, which we call, well, an indirect kind of infallibility. Um, as for its scope, does it include canonizations, all the elements of canon law, every liturgical rubric, or can we distinguish different degrees of, of authority and certainty in these things? Um, and as for its force, um, insofar as the church's discipline indirectly teaches dogma, um, should that teaching power be assimilated or compared to the extraordinary magisterium or only the ordinary and universal magisterium, which requires a universality in space and time, which requires conformity to the past in order to be certain and firm? Um, and because of these three um, points of uncertainty, um, we do not need to always give a direct answer to doubts about um, how to square our position with this, um, this disciplinary infallibility of the church. Instead, our attitude is one that we might call a prudential attitude, um, which aims to act on the basis of a sufficient number of elements or, or let's say, basic certitudes um, without contemplating a definitive solution to all of the theoretical problems that might be proposed to us. Um, and here I'm quoting um, an excellent uh, study of the priests of the Italian district of the SSPX on Sedevacantism, where they explain how the position of the society in regard to all these, these controverted subjects is a prudential one. Um, the, when we're confronted with the crisis in the church, um, we're facing a concrete problem. It's not a theoretical problem, not a mathematical one, not even a, a metaphysical problem, although metaphysics may have some bearing on it. Um, but rather, it's a crisis situation to which no one can provide an apodictic and completely satisfying theological explanation. If you're looking for that, you're not going to find it anywhere. Um, and so we, what we need to do is, first of all, evaluate what are our certitudes and what are things that we can't really be completely certain about. We are certain, on the one hand, of the problems that are in the uh, new mass, that are in certain documents of the Second Vatican Council. The contradiction, the lack of continuity with the past is clear. It's evident. There's no question. We're also certain about the existence of the visible magisterium and the continuance of, of ordinary jurisdiction in the church's hierarchy. There must be a visible hierarchy, otherwise the church is not the church. She is not a visible hierarchical society. Those things are, are solid. And then as to these questions of to what extent is the church infallible in disciplinary matters, we don't have to provide um, a, a complete, clear, and exhaustive answer to that question. It's not our responsibility. Our responsibility um, as a you know, particular society, religious or um, congregation of priests in the church is to face the crisis at hand and to adopt the 
attitude, um, which is most prudent for dealing with the crisis. And that doesn't require that we be able to furnish an exhaustive explanation of all the theoretical questions that could be raised within the context of the crisis. Just to give an explanation of, of what this prudential attitude means, um, the, the virtue of prudence we know from our catechism is, is one which is concerned with governing our actions and making sure that, that we do what is right. Um, however, sometimes we lack direct or uh, absolute certitude about whether what we want to do is right or not. We can't always be perfectly certain. And so just to take as, as an example, um, let's say it's a Friday and I don't know if I can eat a certain food or not. I have no direct certitude about whether it is lawful to eat this cow liver, let's say. Um, what do I do? The virtue of prudence will ask of me to find some solutions that I can act with a safe conscience, a conscience which has a certain minimum of certitude about the morality of what I'm about to do, but I can't find this certitude in, in a direct inquiry because maybe I have no one to consult right now. Um, my you know manuals of canon law aren't, aren't available at the moment, and here and now I have to decide, can I eat this food? Well, then I have recourse to what we call a reflex principle or an indirect um, way of, of attaining certitude. And I say, well, you know what? A doubtful law does not oblige. Or, again, as canon law itself acknowledges, it's one of the principles of canon law, um, laws which impose a burden are to be interpreted strictly or narrowly. And so here, this law of abstinence is imposing a burden on me. I don't know if it actually applies to this case or not, so I can safely interpret it in a narrow way and eat the food. I've attained to a practical Certitude, even though the speculative question about whether, let's say, um, cow liver is is forbidden or not by Friday abstinence, um, that question remains unsolved. But that's okay, because as St. Thomas Aquinas says when treating of prudence, truth in the speculative intellect, our minds looking at you know theoretical or abstract things, it's measured by the mind's conformity to reality. But truth in the practical intellect which has to do with you know, uh, acting rightly, and that, that aspect of our intelligence is perfected by prudence, truth in the practical intellect is measured by the mind's conformity to a right appetite, which means the, the tending of the will towards the good insofar as I, I know it here and now. Um, and as long as I'm doing that, my, I will have a kind of practical certainty which is sufficient for acting prudently even if I may not have resolved the theoretical question. And with a lot of things in the crisis of the church, that's all that we can content ourselves with, is knowing that here and now, I'm doing the thing which is most prudent, even if I can't solve all of the speculative questions to everyone's satisfaction. Right. And especially not with, in, 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 in these cases, uh, often we don't have uh, a trustworthy authority in, in all cases that we can that we can go to, so there there are many times that we have to make these decisions on our own. Absolutely, especially now when the duly constituted authorities in the church are not providing the guidance that they normally should, um, and so there are many difficult questions that we have to answer for ourselves for the moment, while reserving the definitive judgment to the church. 
And so this attitude, um, which which I've been talking about, the prudential attitude of the society, it was, of course, bequeathed to us by Archbishop Lefebvre. And we see him putting it to, to use or, or exercising it all the time. Um, so, for example, with the question of sedificantism um, and papal authority, he had what is clearly a prudential attitude. He didn't claim to attain to dogmatic certitude. Um, for example, he didn't claim to, let's say, look at all what all the different theologians say about when a pope would lose office for public or manifest heresy and decide this theologian has it right. Um, this is the interpretation that we must all go with. Rather, he, he did not seek to resolve that speculative question, and he just considered the question of practically here and now, do I recognize this man? Um, and this comes through very clearly in some of his quotations. For example, he says, um, and I'm taking this from the biography of, of Bishop Tissier, um, at the moment, I prefer to consider the man on the chair of Peter as the Pope. And if one day we discover for certain that the Pope was not the Pope, at least I will have done my duty. In other words, he's determined with, with moral certitude what is his duty here and now to recognize this man. And he admits the existence of certain speculative doubts, you know. Some theologians say that a, a so-called manifest heretic, he loses his office immediately upon whenever his um, his heresy achieves a sufficient degree of notoriety. Now, here we have the Pope, you know, Pope John Paul II in Assisi, um, breaking the first commandment and, you know, gathering false religions together to worship each of them their God. Um even to a grave and prudent man, that could seem like a very striking argument to say, this man is a heretic. How could he possibly be in charge of, of the church? And Archbishop Lefebvre, instead of trying to directly answer that difficulty, um, he always returned to, um, let's say, those things that are already certain. And one of them is uh, the visibility of the church's hierarchy. As he said elsewhere, um, let's see. It would be impossible. The visibility of the church is too necessary to its existence for it to be possible that God would allow that visibility to disappear for decades. That's a certitude. So we keep our certitudes, and then in regard to theological opinions, which might conflict with those certitudes, well, we don't have to answer all of those on the theoretical level. We don't have to go back and, and examine all the theologians and explain why this opinion is right and this one is wrong. It's enough for us to have this practical certitude. It's it's kind of like a it's it's almost like a, and I guess it is legal, um, but it's it's like a court of law. Do you have do you have reasonable? Um, shoot, totally lost the my train of thought. Um, reasonable doubt. Do you have do you have reasonable doubt that this this person may or may not have committed the crime? If so, you have to err on the side of acquitting him. You have to err mm -hmm. on the side of innocence at all at all times. If you're on a jury, uh, it seems like the archbishop is taking the same sort of the same sort of approach on a theological standpoint. He's taking all right. This is the moral certitude. If I don't have moral certitude, then I must default to the traditional position on things. Exactly. Well, especially, I mean, there's there's a general axiom in matters of justice that um, in doubt, 
the person who is already in peaceful possession of something, um, the presumption is in his favor that he's really the true owner if there's a dispute about it. So if someone has, you know, peacefully possessed a certain property, for example, for many years, and someone else comes and claims that is my property, and he produces his his evidence and the owner produces his own, and the judge looks at, at both arguments and, and really just taking the arguments on their own at face value, it's not clear who is in the right. Well, in doubt, we we favor the person who's already been peacefully possessing the thing. Um, otherwise, you know, uh, there will be interminable disputes about about property. Um, so analogously, that can apply to the case of a pope. Um, he's been universally and peacefully recognized by the whole church. And here comes an argument which would seem to prove that he must have lost the papacy. Well, in doubt, I have to presume in favor of the man who's peacefully been possessing that office. And along with that comes, let's say, the the other factor, which is that um, I am not the authority to judge the man. And in fact, for the Pope, there is no authority on earth that can judge him. That's why Archbishop Lefebvre was careful to say, um, you know, maybe someday later on in the history of the church, the proper authority, that is a later pope or a council, ecumenical council, will look back at what we've been going through and judge that these men, in fact, were heretics and not popes. But it's not my duty. It's not my position to judge them. And in in the meantime, if there is any doubt in the matter, um, the benefit of the doubt goes to the man who who has been peacefully enjoying the papacy already. Um, and in fact, it's a teaching of theologians. We can point to Cardinal Beale, among others, St. Alphonsus de Liguori, um, that if a pope is is peacefully and universally recognized as such by the whole church, there can be no doubt about the legitimacy of his pontificate. And these theologians even teach that if there was a canonical defect in the election, um, such as, you know, it was it was done by simony or, you know, um, some of the cardinals were actually excommunicated. So they were, you know, not legitimate electors. And we didn't know that. Well, whatever defect was there, it would be healed in the root by the, the peaceful and universal recognition that's given to the pope after his election by the uh, the Roman clergy and the church at large. Um, so it was it was these different considerations that gave Archbishop Lefebvre a practical certitude that this man, John Paul II, for example, is legitimate pope, even if he didn't necessarily have a direct answer to all the the speculative questions that could be raised about, you know, um, heresy and and the incompatibility of heresy with withholding office in the church. So this is the the prudential dis- the distinctions that that Archbishop Lefebvre is doing in terms of you know infallibility of the pope in terms of you know the position of. Uh, traditional-minded people in the church, um, then how do we apply this to our central thesis of, of this uh, of these two episodes, Father, applying it to the Novus Ordo Mass? Excellent question. So, in other words, um, looking at the matter theoretically or speculatively, um, it's not certain whether the promulgation of the Novus Ordo Mass is a violation of the infallibility of the church or not. If we just consider that problem in the abstract, because there is a range of opinion among theologians, um, as we've already discussed, and and even when they do state their positions, it's not always clear how to apply them. So there's a doubt as to whether there's a violation here. Um, And so in the abstract, we might just leave things in doubt. But then we have to be practical, because here we're living in the midst of a crisis in the church. And if I follow, let's say, um, my, my doubt about infallibility, 
to the point of either um, blind acceptance of the new mass or a rejection wholesale of the entire mainstream church as, as a false church and anti-church. In either case, I've clearly um, strayed from the truth. And I've put myself in a position where I can't solve or can't do anything to better the crisis in the church. And so, let's say on the, on the practical level, it's clear that um, even if I don't have yet a completely satisfying answer in which I, I clearly state under these conditions and no others, the church is infallible in her discipline, even if I haven't attained that degree of understanding, um, I know what is the position that I should take here and now, which is to continue to recognize the visible, um, lawfully constituted authorities in the church. Um, you know, Pope, right now, Pope Francis and the bishops who are in communion with him, um, to recognize them as the legitimate authority, because that's certain, based upon the, the principle of the church's formal visibility. And then, at the same time, to resist the new Mass and the novelties of Vatican II, because it's also certain that they are not in conformity with tradition. And then I can leave a certain amount uh, of... of um, uh, doubt or ambiguity as to how exactly to reconcile um, these things with the teaching of theologians on the church's disciplinary infallibility, because that is a, a speculative matter. And uh, the premises that our, our enemies would use, would invoke against us, are not certain. They might be using a quotation from a theologian who's giving his opinion, but it's not the official teaching of the church. I think that, let's say, this is, again, the attitude of Archbishop Lefebvre. We should, we should make that clear. Um, and he, too, was confronted with this problem of disciplinary infallibility. Um, I'll give a quotation, which is taken from um, a letter that he wrote to a friend in 1984. One has had to live from 1960 to the present moment to discover that popes can lead the church to her ruin. Such a thing seemed impossible to us, given the promises of the Holy Ghost's assistance that we already talked about. Contrafactum non fit argumentum. Against the facts, there is no argument. The facts are there before our eyes. So we have to conclude that when our Lord spoke of help until the end of time, he did not exclude periods of darkness and a time of passion for his mystical spouse, the church. That's what we have to conclude. We have to conclude here that the promulgation of the new mass, or even Pope Francis's most recent motu proprio, is not a violation of papal infallibility. We have to conclude that even if we don't yet have a completely satisfying explanation of how that is so. But we will give one which I think is fairly satisfying, or at least shows the, the um, credibility um, or let's say the plausibility of the fact that there's no violation. And that's what we're going to do in this ultimate part of, of the um, interview. Okay. All right. So, so plausibility, again, we are, we are unclear on, on the exact uh, definitions. We're, we're unclear, not on the exact definitions, but we're mm -hmm. un unclear on a, on a completely... Um, I don't know what to say. On the um, exact extent of infallibility in disciplinary matters, that is unclear. Okay. Um, does it apply so to, have to all look disciplinary at it matters? And so we have to look at it in terms of plausibility and prudential prudential judgment. Sure. That's where we have to have to go. Sure. So for us to prudentially judge um, that we should continue to recognize 
Pope Francis and and the uh, visible hierarchy, and at the same time reject these novelties, it's enough for us to show that it's plausible, that we can reconcile these things with the church's teaching about infallibility. We don't have to prove it uh, definitively, but we should be able to at least show the plausibility, which is what we're about to do. Um, it's kind of like, for example, um, it's a very different subject matter, but when theologians defend the doctrine of the Holy Trinity against the objections that are made against it. They are not seeking to prove uh, conclusively the possibility that there be three persons and one God, because it's impossible to natural reason to prove that. Their only objective is to show that the objections made against the doctrine of the Holy Trinity are not conclusive, and that's enough for us to hold it as a truth of faith and still maintain a faith that is reasonable. That is in conformity with reason, because at least we can we can show that the objections on the basis of natural reason against this dogma are not conclusive, and so it will be the same with our our rejection um, of of our opponents' objections here, who say that the um, you know the promulgation of the new mass must have involved infallibility. Um, we will show that their objection is not conclusive, and that's enough. Okay. Now. In, in doing this, I'm going to follow the study of um, a Brazilian lay theologian, Arnaldo da Silveira, um, whose work translated into English is called The Theological and Moral Implications of the New Ordo Mise. Um, this is a study that he put together um, just as the new rite of mass had just been promulgated, and it was, in fact, um, waiting to go into effect. There was a certain grace period where you could continue to say the old mass, or you could start to say the new mass. Um, and this study was something which um, I believe was read and, and referenced by Archbishop Lefebvre, um, as well as Bishop uh, Antonio de Castro Meyer. So it's, it's a study of historical importance, and I think it still um, is greatly helpful for us in the present day. I think that the reasons that, that this um, theologian puts forward um, for reconciling the promulgation of the new mass with, with liturgical infallibility, they're, they're still very solid. Um, and Silvera brings forth three main points in his study. One, uh, and these, the point of, of all of this is to show that at the very least, liturgical infallibility is not uniform. It's not true to say that anything by the fact that it is um, made a universal liturgical norm or rubric of the church, that therefore it is infallible. That cannot be. And that's clear. Um, and so then that leaves us with a certain ambiguity as to where the exact limits are. But at least we know that not everything is infallible. And there's three arguments that prove this. One is um, the evidence of um, doctrinal errors in liturgical texts that enjoyed widespread or even universal use in the Latin church. Um, we've already mentioned the reading um, from Matins, I believe, for the Feast of the Assumption, um, in which there was a letter falsely attributed to St. Jerome um, called the Letter to Paula, um, which questioned the, the truth of Our Lady's bodily assumption to heaven. And then that lesson was eventually withdrawn around the, I believe, the 16th century and replaced with others that were more suitable, that were conformed with the, the faith of the church. But there was this error, which was universal. We can also mention two other things um, having to do with liturgical rubrics now. Um, there was a, a rubric in certain pontificals 
of the 13th century. Um, from my own research, it seems like it was about half and half. Half of them had this, half of them didn't. Um, but it was consecration by contact. The idea that um, when a, a bishop or priest goes to give Holy Communion to someone who's sick, he can simply dip the consecrated host in wine. And the idea was that the wine would turn into the precious blood simply by contact with the consecrated host. This is not true. It's an error. And nevertheless, this action was prescribed um, for the, the the bishop or priest who was administering viaticum, last Holy Communion, to, to a sick person. Um, and it was certainly widespread, even if not all of the pontificals had this rubric. Um, so that's interesting. Another one um, is is the, concerns the matter of priestly ordination, and this is certainly something that's universal. It's widespread um, because until the year 1950, all the Roman pontificals they contained a recommendation to the bishop to instruct the ordinands to the priesthood, those who were about to be ordained priests, um, to touch the instruments, meaning the chalice and patent host, um, in whose bestowal. The character is impressed, the character of the priesthood. In other words, this rubric, which was in the pontifical until 1950 when it was, it was deleted um, on the, the express order of the Pope, um, this rubric taught that the bestowal of the priesthood is through touching what are called the instruments, the, the chalice, the paten, the host, um, and, and the chalice containing wine. Um, and this was a, an opinion which was sustained, especially by medieval theologians, even St. Thomas. Um, but it's clear that, um, well, whatever may have been the case, some theologians think that the church has a certain power um, over some sacraments to change the what is valid matter for those sacraments, and priestly ordination would be an example. Some theologians hold that that really was the matter of priestly ordination in the, the Latin church until in 1948, Pope Pius XII um, defined that at least henceforth, the only matter for priestly ordination would be the imposition of hands. And that the the handing over of the instruments, so to speak, um, is no longer required for validity if it ever was. But in other words, it's left an open question if at any time the matter of the sacrament was the um, touching or handing over of the instruments. And theologians, even before this um, this papal bull of, of Pius XII in 1948, theologians had freely debated what is the, the matter of the sacrament of priestly ordination. Is it the, the tradition, the, the touching of the instruments? Is it the imposition of hands? Is it both? And the existence of this rubric in the pontifical um, did not decide the matter for them. It was not decisive, mm. which means that that rubric did not enjoy infallibility in the mind of all these theologians who considered the matter debatable. Um, right. So that's those are clear examples of um, rubrics or teachings which were universally um, uh, adopted by the church, um, by the authority of, of the popes themselves who legislated in these matters. Um, and nevertheless, they were not considered infallible. Mm. So that's point number one. Yeah. Point number two is that there are also certain truths of faith, such as the Immaculate Conception, the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary into Heaven, Body and Soul, that were commemorated universally in the liturgy for centuries prior to their dogmatic definition. And nevertheless, the theologians did not consider these truths to be matters of faith. 
And therefore, we can conclude with certainty that the mere fact of universality in a liturgical rubric or text does not guarantee um, its its truthfulness, or certainly not its belonging to the the deposit of faith. Um, it's not right. sufficient for infallibility. Um, to provide some precise examples, um, well, going back to the Immaculate Conception, in the year 1708, Pope Clement the Eleventh extended the solemnity of the Immaculate Conception to all the Church. Um, but without condemning the contrary opinion. In this case, there was an explicit statement. Um, we impose this this feast upon the whole church, but we don't condemn the contrary opinion. And Pope Benedict XIV, in his study on canonizations, um, he concluded that the cult, the feast, and everything else which, been, which had been approved in honor of the Virgin, as having been preserved from original sin in her conception, absolutely do not result in that preservation from original sin being held as certain as a matter of faith. And there was also a theologian, um, Le Bachelet, I don't know how to say it, um, who, who wrote an article on the Immaculate Conception in, in the French uh, Dictionary of, of Catholic Theology, um, who explains in this article that this imposition of the liturgical feast on the entire church provided the church only with a certainty of the moral order, a moral certitude, which can be subject to error. Um, concerning the Immaculate Conception, it did not provide an absolute certitude. So that's the Immaculate Conception. We have also the, the dogma of the Assumption. And here the, the liturgical feast was in universal use, um, even century prior, centuries prior to uh, that of the Immaculate Conception. It's a very ancient liturgical feast. And nevertheless... Um, the same Pope, Benedict XIV, wrote that the common opinion of theologians was that the liturgical feast of the Assumption, although it had been universally adopted by the Church for many centuries past, could not of itself furnish proof that this was a truth of faith. Even we have St. Peter Canisius, um, who lived in the time that... Um, the the writing which questioned the assumption of Our Lady was withdrawn from the liturgy, um, and he explained that there are different degrees in, in the certitude that we have about things. Um, there are what he calls explicit dogmas, which one must believe under pain of heresy. Then there are truths that are accepted by the faithful and sanctioned by the practice of the Church, so like things that are incorporated into our discipline, which it is rash to deny, rash but not heretical, and certain truths expressed by the public worship, whose authority continues to increase as the teachers of the church go corroborating them with more interest and as they go penetrating into the convictions of the faithful. And so the doctrine of the Assumption of Our Lady, St. Peter Canisius says, belongs to this last category, liturgical uh, doctrines which are supported by the liturgy, but not for that reason infallible. Um so that's, let's say, those are the examples that we would give um, of, of universal liturgical disciplines or, or practices which did not involve infallibility. Um, the same would apply, of course, to certain modern-day feasts, like the presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the Temple, um, which, I mean, we continue to, to um, celebrate in the, in the traditional liturgy, but which is not a dogma of faith. And I don't think any theologian would say that it is, just from the fact that, that it's a feast which is in our liturgy. But last of all, um, just an argument from reason, by analogy with the dogmatic texts in which the Church um, you know, teaches uh, directly truths of the dogmatic order. 
Um, it is illogical to attribute greater infallibility to the church's discipline or liturgy than to her acts that are of a directly doctrinal character, such as papal encyclicals or the decrees of ecumenical councils. However, it's also universally acknowledged by theologians that these doctrinal acts um, are not infallible of themselves, except where they contain a solemn definition, or they conform to the infallible teaching of the ordinary and universal magisterium by their you know, conformity to tradition. Um, but in other words, a papal encyclical, for example, it's addressed to the entire church, all the bishops of the right. church, and then indirectly the, the faithful. Um, and and the, the Pope is directly teaching the whole church about dogma. And nevertheless, um, papal encyclicals are not infallible of themselves, unless it, the Pope makes it clear that he wants to define a precise point of dogma. So the mere fact of universality, once again, is not a guarantee of infallibility. If that's true in doctrine, which is the primary sense in which the church is infallible, it's her, it's her doctrinal infallibility, first of all, um, why would we say in, in regards to disciplinary infallibility that everything is covered by it? It doesn't make sense. It really doesn't. So those are the three, those are the three arguments uh, that Silvera is saying, that these... Um, that there are doctrinal errors in liturgical texts throughout mm -hmm. history. So we saw that with the Roman pontificals. Then there's these, uh, the feasts that, so then looking at it on the positive side, we have these feasts that are, that were celebrated before they became dogmas universally. They were universally believed, but they were not dogmas. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we just look at the analogy with these dogmatic texts and, and to Silvera, this is stating, well, this is, this makes it at least, uh, gives us a, a chance to say that the Novus Ordo Mass is not infallible. Exactly. It, it's, it's saying, okay. Yeah, it gives us room to move in because, um, let's say, those who really exaggerate the Church's disciplinary infallibility will say that no um, liturgical law or rubric or text which is promulgated for the universal Church can can contain error. And, and these three arguments make it abundantly clear that that is not true. As to where exactly to draw the line, how can we identify um, where, in what precise point, would a liturgical text be infallible? That's still very much to be debated. Um, but it's clear that we cannot accept um, this maximal interpretation of infallibility, which extends it to everything um, that is universal. Rather, what we have to do is we have to look not only to the universality of the liturgical law, but also to the intention of the one promulgating it, as this is expressed in, in the document, in any other um, external circumstances which help us to know of his intention. And so here, getting precisely to the point of the Novus Ordo Mass, we have an important indicator of um, Paul VI's intention in promulgating this Mass. Um, did he intend to engage the Church's infallibility? Because if there's no intention to engage it, then it doesn't happen. That's clear. Just as, for example, if, if the Pope teaches something in an encyclical, but he doesn't clearly make clear his intention to define, then that teaching is not infallible. Um, same with the, the Church's liturgy and discipline. And Pope Paul VI, he has a very, he said something very interesting. Um, in a discourse that he gave to a general audience on November 26, 1969, in which he stated that, uh, referring to the, the new order of mass, the right and the respective rubrics are not by themselves a dogmatic definition. They are susceptible of theological qualification of varying value, according to the liturgical context to which they refer. 
They are gestures and terms which are related to a religious action, lively and living, of an ineffable mystery of the divine presence, which is not always realized in the same manner, an action which is only theological, which only theological criticism can analyze and express in doctrinal formulae which are logically satisfactory. Okay, so wow. there's much which is unclear in that statement, but one thing does come, come forward very clearly, that the uh, various rubrics of this new rite of mass do not amount to a dogmatic definition, and they can be given different theological qualifications as to their authority or their certitude. Um, and, and so it's very clear from that statement that there was not the intention of engaging papal infallibility in the promulgation of this liturgy. And so I think that for us, that's more than a sufficient answer to the objections that are that are made to us without pretending to so that, solve all the theoretical problems about when and where exactly is the church infallible in our liturgy we can say here there is good reason to believe that there was no engagement of infallibility based on this quotation uh, of the very pope who promulgated the liturgy i want to throw one thing at you father and i know we've already been talking for a little bit over an hour and we're almost done um but this this statement here this seems to indicate very clearly to me at least that all right the the infallibility part of uh, the argument or the set of a contest position that says you know this is the church has violated its infallibility that argument's null and voided at this point because he never intended to enter into infallibility now on the opposite side of the argument where we have the uh we have the the conciliars we have the diocesan bishops etc who say well you, but you still need to act in prudence, and they may take some of the statements from Archbishop Lefebvre that we talked about before and say, well, Archbishop Lefebvre was all about acting in prudence, that we have to err on the side of, like you said, the Pope who is in the chair of St. Peter. Therefore, if, and mm -hmm. I, I'm, I may not be getting this clear, this is all just kind of running in my head at the moment, sure. so forgive me, but, um, you know, your argument, Father, was saying, and the Archbishop's argument was saying, well, we have to, if, if there's not this doctrinal certainty, then we stay with what was done before. Mm -hmm. I think the modernist would say, if there's not this doctrinal certainty, then you should stay with the guy who's in the chair in Rome, not go off on your own. Mm -hmm. Does that question make sense? Sure. Um, no, it does make sense. Um, so let's be clear what we're uncertain about. We are uncertain about the exact limits of papal infallibility. Um, in, in regard to the church's discipline and, and worship, at what point um, is a liturgical rubric or text infallibly true or good for the salvation of souls? Um, we are uncertain. Um, however, that does not mean that we're uncertain about whether this particular text or rubric is harmful or to souls or contains error. In fact, we can have certitude on that, and thus indirectly we can judge that it must not have been covered by infallibility, given that there's already doubt in the abstract. Um, and given the general principle, which, which is in canon law, um, concerning doctrinal infallibility, that in doubt, um, you know, a, a doctrine is not to be considered as infallibly defined unless that is manifestly the case. Likewise, with the liturgy, um, a, a rubric or a text should not be considered as uh, engaging the church's infallibility unless that's manifest. Here it's not manifest, and it is clear to us that there are problems, that there are errors, that this poses, this new liturgy poses a danger to our faith. And here we, once again, on the practical order, we have um, 
a, a number of certitudes which are sufficient to guide our, our activity in the midst of the church's crisis. And one of these is the principle of legitimate resistance to duly constituted authority when that authority does something which is dangerous to the faith of the church. And it's given to us in the example of St. Paul, who withstood St. Peter to the face at Antioch because St. Peter was doing something which put the faith in danger. He was withdrawing from the Gentiles and eating only with those uh, Christians who observed the Mosaic law. And this put in danger, um, at least for the, the Christians of Antioch, um, the truth that salvation comes to us through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and not through the works of the Mosaic Law. And St. Paul, although he was St. Peter's inferior, St. Peter was Pope, St. Paul was not Pope of the Church, yet St. Paul withstood him to the face, rebuked him openly. And St. Thomas Aquinas, when he he comments upon this um, in his passage in the Summa Theologica, where he's treating of, of the virtue of charity and the duty of fraternal correction. And he says that while normally an inferior should only you know, rebuke his superior in, in private if he does something wrong, nevertheless, when there is a, an um, imminent danger to the faith, then he has the right and even the duty to stand up and publicly oppose, resist this authority. And that principle being taught by the greatest of the church's theologians, that is a certain principle and can be safely applied in practice. Um, and that's what we do. We don't have all the answers about um, the exact extent of disciplinary infallibility, but we can identify concretely here and now a a danger to our faith in this new liturgy, which justifies our rejection of the liturgy and our our vocal opposition to it in order to protect the faith of the church. And in doing so, we don't have to go farther and declare that um, this this man who sits on the throne of Peter must have lost his papal authority. We don't have to adopt the set of Vicanza's thesis. Because the the very premises they base their thesis on, um, premises about the church's infallibility, are not certain. They consider they concern a matter which is still open to dispute among theologians and which has not been definitively clarified by the church's magisterium. So why enter into a a, um, a dogmatic and, and practical mess? Um, which I mean, not to be insulting, but that's what certificantism entails. Why enter into that um, if if the premise that obliges you is not certain? Rather, we should base our contact uh, our, our conduct upon premises that are certain, um, like the right of of resistance when there is a danger to the faith, um, the clear contradiction between the previous magisterium and what's being taught and imposed now, um, and those those principles are are more than sufficient to guide our action. So, when if we want to sum up this whole thing, this these last two episodes that we've been doing, we get down to the the main question, which is how is it that the church could give us the the bad right of the mass? And we can probably sum it up in basically a sentence: um, it's because it wasn't infallible. Exactly. the The act of promulgating this liturgy does not seem to have involved the church's infallibility, and we have evidence for that in the quotation that we provided from Paul the Sixth himself. Um, and so that's, that is our basic answer. Now, I would still like to make a distinction on the semantic level. What's, what's the best way to express ourselves? Um, and maybe other priests or, you know, real theologians in the society, not me, uh, maybe others will say that I'm wrong. Um, but it seems to me that we should avoid the expression that the church has given us a bad liturgy. Why? Because 
Well, we don't attribute to the church the sins or bad actions of her members, and even uh, not even the sins of the Pope. And I would say that if this liturgy, which Pope Paul VI has given us, is inherently defective, dangerous to the faith, um, if it if it contains a certain lack of reverence to the Blessed Sacrament, uh, etc., um, then it was objectively speaking a very grave sin of his to promulgate or attempt to promulgate this this bad rite of Mass. And I don't want to attribute that action to the church, just like I don't attribute any of the sins of the members of the church to her as such. And we have to keep in mind um, that the Pope is not the primary head of the church. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. And this, the Pope is, is merely his vicar on earth. He's the secondary and vicarious head. And so it's not as if every action of the Pope is necessarily an action of the church as such. Um, so for me, at least, I think it's it's safer um, and, and a better way of speaking to say, no, the church did not give us this rite of mass. Paul VI gave us this rite of mass. And that was a very unfortunate decision on his part. Um, and in, in making this distinction, I think I'm being faithful to the spirit of Archbishop Lefebvre. Um, he, he wrote in a letter to friends and benefactors um, in 1975, uh, speaking of you know the persecution that he was enduring from the church hierarchy, he wrote, It is not the church, nor the successor of Peter, uh, as such, who strikes us, but rather men of the church, imbued with liberal errors, occupying high positions in the church and profiting of their power to obliterate the past of the church and to establish a new church which has nothing of Catholic. So I would say, in brief, that it was not the church that gave us this bad rite of mass. It was Paul VI who gave us this bad rite of mass. And that is possible because he was not engaging his papal infallibility in the act of promulgating this liturgical rite. And that would be my answer to, to the dilemma. Wow. No, thank you, Father. That was, um, I was, I always kind of try to guess where, where our priests are going to go uh, when, when I have the topic. And, and while you're preparing uh, these, these conferences, I always go, I wonder if he's going to go. I had no clue how you were going to be answering this one. Um, and it took us two episodes, but it was, uh, these were very well done. So thank you so much for taking all the time to put these together and, and go through it all with us. My pleasure. Um, you know, as, as you might understand, because I have people in my own family who are troubled by these questions. Um, it's, it's something which is very close to my heart, and so I'm happy to provide the best solution that I have been able to discover through reading the writings of Archbishop Lefebvre and the works, other works of priests of the society. Um, if this can do any good to souls who are you know, confused, either on the mainstream side of the church or um, souls who have embraced out of Vicantism, I, I hope that it does some good. Well, I'm sure it will, so thank you so much, Father. Sure, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to and watching episode 37 of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. Next week on the Crisis series, we're happy to welcome back Don Tranquilo to answer one more question about the papacy. Is Pope Benedict still the legitimate Pope? His abdication took the church by surprise, leaving many to wonder if it was done correctly. Or is it even possible to do it all? Can a Pope abdicate? And do we have two Popes? That's next time. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and to the SSPX News English YouTube channel so that you won't miss next week's episode or any of our future ones. 
And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of 5 or 10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this crisis in the church project and get started on the next ones. Until next week, thank you for listening and God bless you.